You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And we thank you that your word is our final authority. And Lord, we thank you that your word is sharper and more powerful than a two-edged sword. We ask this morning that you would enable us to understand not only how your word applies in situations in which we help or are part of assisting in the process of reconciliation, but we also want to look at, Father, what our attitudes should be in this process. We just thank you and pray this in Jesus' precious name. We ask that your spirit would guide us through your word, and we just thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the uh, texts that we considered was that of Matthew 18. And there it says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. That's Matthew 18.15. So as we consider that text, um, when you look at the language of this text, it doesn't pertain to somebody necessarily having to sin against you. It's one who has been in a sin. That is an unrepentant, continuous, ongoing sin that is unrepented of. And that's what that text is referring to. So some have looked at that text and said, well, um, this is just between one individual and another individual who's been sinned against. Uh, we're in Matthew 18:15, But that's not all that it includes. In this text, it actually speaks of anyone who is living in a manner that is contrary to the word of God on a continual basis, and there is no repentance. So we're addressing that <clears throat> in light of How do we do that, and who does that? Well, last week we considered Galatians 6, which says if if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, go to censor one in the spirit of gentleness and meekness, lest you too be ensnared. So you who are spiritual, that means what? So that we can refresh that. A right relationship with God. Any believer who is in a right relationship with God, they qualify to help restore one who is in a snare. So this is where it gets a little bit complicated. We may see somebody at sin and we go, wait a minute. Um, You know, I'm a sinner myself. I know that I did this, this and this. So how am I, who am I to go to him or her and try to bring corrective measure or try to bring restoration? Good question. 
I mean, I would look at that. But the Lord gave specific instructions in that as well prior to Matthew 18. So let's turn there, if you would, to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. Begins uh, this chapter by saying this. Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back unto you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's a a very uh, interesting text, because any of you that have worked around wood and you think of sawdust getting in your eye, it impairs your vision. Well, here, the Lord is likening something that's a speck in your eye, which is clouding your vision, to one who's got a beam in their eye. In other words, it's not talking about literally a plank being in your eye, but you have a speck that blocks partial vision. But a beam, if you put it in front of you, blocks totally your vision. So what this is talking about, if we have something in our own lives that is blocking us from seeing things clearly, that is identifying sin, and we're in sin ourselves, we're to remove that plank, which is that of confession, repentance, so that we can see clearly. Don't ever think that you can go help correct or bring restoration to somebody if you're in sin yourself. Because how will you be, first of all, able to discern? Second, how would you be able to approach that person in the spirit? You would have a critical attitude. You would not be able to discern or have spiritual discernment. And also, you would not be in a place, as Paul tells us to be, in Galatians 6. And what the Lord here brings as a command, we first remove that which is in our own eye. Carol. Uh, the question I've had, and I know others have had conversations with her, is how do you know that, you know, because sometimes you can be doing things and not even realize that you're sinning against somebody or whatever, but you're not in right fellowship, and you don't know it. And so how can you say, go to somebody else? Can you pray at that moment before going to somebody else? Okay, Any good. unknown sins. Yeah. You know, I could offend you and not even realize that. Mm-hmm. If you did, don't worry. You'd know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I've had that conversation come up with people when we've discussed it. Okay, good question. Uh, what, what if we ourselves have areas of behavior in our own lives that are offensive to somebody else, and we're not even aware of it. Well, we need to go before the Lord. It isn't just a matter of a quick throwing up a prayer. Well, forgive me, Lord, for any blanket sin that I have committed. It is a total time of 
uh, prayer before the Lord, and it's God's Spirit that can reveal our sin. If we're not in the Word regularly, we're not going to have a mirror of our own heart. And that's part of what God's Word says. When we look at the book of James, and it talks about his one that goes in the mirror and looks at himself and he walks away, doesn't remember what he's seen. The Word of God is like a mirror to our hearts. It will reveal our sin. So we have to understand that we can't just try to judge ourselves. We have to go before the Lord, humble ourselves. And as David prayed, let let me know of any wicked way that is in me. We don't always, aren't always having clear perspective of our behavior, but the word reveals it and God's spirit. God's spirit will bring conviction of sin and righteousness. So if we're humble before the Lord, we can go before him and have our understanding of our sin and be able to genuinely repent of that sin. So once we have done that, then we're in a place to where we could go and help restore a brother or sister who is in a snare. Okay? All right. So, yes, Steve. While we're still in Matthew 7, this is the beginning. Yes. I'm wondering how verse 6 might relate to the previous five verses about um, don't give dogs what is holy and cast and throw before swine. Okay. Is it connected, referring to uh, judging as one to others, <clears throat> specifically either unbelievers or believers in sin? Uh, right. In a, when we're talking about um, the whole context of restoration, uh, Steve is referring here to verse 6, where it says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. This will be a same, the same parallel as we look at in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We are not to judge those who are in the world. We don't have that right, nor can we do so. But any so-called brothers, we're going to look at more clearly. So for us to go to try to make bring corrective measure to somebody who is living in sin, who is not a believer, it's like casting our pearls before swine. They cannot receive truth, nor will they understand truth. And there's more to it in the whole context, but basically we do not try to bring truth to an unbeliever who is in sin other than the gospel, which brings forth regeneration. So let's go back now to um, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Hold your place in Matthew 18. We're going to, you got lots of fingers, so try to use them more effectively than I have at times in the, in the use of my saw. You know, in the uh, book of Samuel, Samuel says this, Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams. There's a call to our obedience in the Old Testament. As we think of this call for us to restore or to uh, recognize sin, it's a big command in the body of Christ. 
And let's look at it in the context of 1 Corinthians 5. We'll begin with verse 1 so that we maintain the context here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that's a pretty powerful thing to consider here. Here Paul is writing to the Corinthians because he's heard of this sin. Now, this would be equivalent to incest in this age of the early church. A man or son was living with his father's wife, who was his mother-in-law. He was cohabiting with her, and those in the church didn't do anything. And that's why Paul says, are you arrogant, puffed up? Are you so dead that you don't even address a sin such as this? This heinous, lascivious behavior, you just let it go? Don't even address it? So Paul is rebuking, first of all, the body at Corinth. He's telling them that they shouldn't have done this. Now he does something that's very interesting. He's prayed, and obviously he uh, recognizes that he's speaking as under the influence of God's spirit. So even though he's not there physically, he's praying that this man will be turned over to the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Basically, there's there's some various uh, takes on that, but basically what Paul is wanting to happen, Paul sees this man's soul as vital. Whoever this man is, he's a professing believer. In other words, he's a so-called brother, and yet he's living in gross immorality. So Paul wants the church to take action. What action are they going to take? They're going to put this man out of fellowship. That is, uh, we're going to explain what the ramifications of that means, but basically, he is no longer to be included in their worship service, their Bible studies, their daily social activities, but he's to be put out. For what reason? So that he may come to repentance and be restored, first of all, to his relationship with the Lord. Second of all, restored to the body. So let's go on. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here's a crucial truth. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. The... uh, 
practice in those days of preparing bread was to take a portion of a loaf of bread and uh, let it season for a period of time where it fermented. And they would take that small portion of dough, which was referred to as leaven, and they would mix it when they made another loaf of bread, and it would cause the bread to rise when they baked it. So what happens is that little bit of leaven or yeast, basically what it is, would actually permeate that whole loaf. And Paul's likening that to one who is having ongoing sin in the body, to affecting the whole body. So it's no small thing. He's making a picture here, a vivid picture of saying, you know what? Your glory is not good. You are puffed up. You are blind to what is going on here. Don't you realize that this one sin can corrupt the whole body? You could have a fantastic ministry going on, and you could have all these things, be orthodox, all of this, and yet allow sin to continue, and it will affect the whole body. That's what Paul is saying. So he's really giving them a strong uh, rebuke. It isn't just a rebuke or a warning. He's rebuking the body here at Corinth. Next verse, 7. Therefore, <clears throat> purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So what he's saying is purge out that sinfulness. Take that person. Remove them from the fellowship since you are truly unleavened. In other words, you're not permeated with this sin. You have been delivered from sin, and you are maintaining a right relationship to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. So Paul is wanting them to remain pure. He doesn't want them to be affected by this sinfulness of this one man's behavior. Unrepentant. Yes, Diane. Good question. Diane asked the question, when you're talking about going to somebody who is in sin, as Matthew 18 says, you go to him privately, what would be the time frame before you would go to step two, which is bringing two or three witnesses, having two or three witnesses? That question can only be answered in the response that you get from the individual. If the individual hears you, and yet still doesn't repent, I would continue going back to that individual and appealing spiritually to them, praying for them. By that time, you're still keeping it in the sphere of you and that person alone. And until they reject, they say, I don't want to meet with you. I don't want to hear anything. I've made my choices, and this is what I'm going to do. That is a sign that they are unrepentant, unwilling to hear, and that is when you take two or three. Now, we're going to discuss that two or three, what that means, 
We did a little bit touch on it last week, but we're going to discuss that in the process here. But let's carry through with what Paul's uh, process is in 1 Corinthians 5. Continuing on with uh, verse 7. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um, when they practiced Passover, they practiced with unleavened bread. And leaven uh, or yeast always, not always, because there's a text in Matthew that refers to a good um, influence of leaven. But in most circumstances and most scriptural contexts, Leaven is always associated with sin, and it permeates, whether it be the Old Testament Israel or in the New Testament, the church, when sin is uh, carried out in an unrepentant way, it's going to permeate and affect the whole church. goes on, I wrote you in verse 9, in my epistle, now here... Uh, Historically, Paul had already written a letter to the Corinthians. Now, historically, they say, well, the letter was lost at some point in time, but it was never recorded as or given the place of Scripture. It wasn't ever considered an inspired letter. But nevertheless, Paul had written to the church of Corinth prior. And this is what he was reminding him of. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or, <clears throat> or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named, another version says, so-called brother, who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Let's back up in this text. Yet I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Paul, uh, when he wrote them, they misunderstood some things here. What they misunderstood was they were disassociating themselves totally and completely from the world. They had no contact because Paul had written them before not to be uh, associating with immoral people. He was talking about the believers. He was talking about that separation from anyone who was carrying on uh, as being a so-called Christian and yet living in continual unrepentant sin. But he didn't tell them to separate from the world. But here's a question. And I'm so happy the youth is here today. So I'm going to address this specifically to the youth, but to the adults as well. And I hope I get a response. Let me ask this question. Youth, when we think of friendships, uh, what about having friends that are not believers? Good, bad, okay, or does it even matter? Yes, Darian. Two actual friends who 
Bringing what? Excellent. Did you hear what Darian said there? Okay, as Christians, God, when he prayed his prayer in, in John, the high priestly prayer from 14 through 17, he said, not that I want to take them out of the world, speaking about the body of Christ or Christians, but that you protect them from the evil one, that you protect them from the evil one. So God wants us to be in the world, but not what? Of it. So Darian made a good point here. One point is this, that we have some Christian accountability, one who is spiritual, one who can be a positive spiritual influence. At the same time, we are to be a witness to the world. But there's a line and a condition to that. And she stated it quite well. If that individual is a bad influence, we don't keep close company with somebody who is going to corrupt us. Why? 1 Corinthians 15.33. Bad company corrupts good morals. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So we have to be careful with our relationships. We can be impacted greatly by some charismatic, strong, influential individual who is totally of the world. They may be persuasive. They may be humorous. They may have great personality. But they can impact this in a very dangerous way. We have to be discerning in these relationships and how close these relationships should be. Paul warns again when we get over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, don't be yoked unequally. Be ye not unequally yoked. That covers a myriad of relationships, not only marriage, but work. We don't want to form partnerships with somebody who is an unbeliever. We don't want to have a close friendship with somebody who is not a believer. So we have to remember there's criteria for us as God's children. There's warnings, there's admonitions, and we have to listen to those. Yes, we are to be in the world, but not of it. Yes, we are to have associations and somewhat friendships on some levels, but it can never be on an intimate level because there is no oneness 
of mind, there's no kindred spirit with an unbeliever or a believer who is living uh, an inconsistent life. So as you consider your friendships, consider what that friendship is doing to your relationship with the Lord. Examine that. Now, you might say, okay, Jess, what about, uh, I'll use my own example. What about my extended family? All of us have extended family, perhaps, that don't know the Lord. In fact, our rank, I have several different Old Testament terms, but I will just be polite and say just rank unbelievers. I sometimes refer to them as some kind of a Philistine. So as we look at that, we have to recognize we're still to reach out to those our family members. Not that we could have a close, intimate relationship with them, because we won't be able to. There's no kindred spirit. But yet we should show, as Darian said, love. Who is going to show it to them? The world? Mm-mm. No, the world's love is totally conditional. But we can always continually pray for those who are lost in members of our family and be interceding constantly on their behalf. We show our love by our behavior. So this brings us to another question. And I had this presented to me uh, just after the last class. What about... uh, say, a family member that um, is wayward, uh, how do we respond to that? <clears throat> Let's just say parents to children. Now, we're going to have a couple of classes on parenting later as we progress here. But for now, we are to minister to those that are wayward in a way to bring them to repentance. But what about an unbelieving child? How do we uh, how do we minister to them? There's a lot of parents here today. How do we minister to a wayward child that rejects Christ, that rejects all the authority of Scripture, and rejects any uh, biblical truth? Carol. There you and go. Just pray for them. And you'll yeah. share with them as much as they allow. Yeah. Right. Okay. There's two good uh, points that were brought out here, Carol and Lanny. We would treat unbelievers with unconditional love. We never accept their sin. We should hate the sin. Never condone it, but hate it but yet be able to love the sinner. That's a hard line right there. Being able to make that distinction, saying, you know what? <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. I, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say, well, I hate this or I hate that, but we should hate sin. That's the beginning of wisdom, to hate every sin and every perverse word. But to be able to love that sinner 
to a point of opportunity, whenever you have opportunity, but yet you set parameters. You don't give license to sinful behavior, especially if it's in your own household. You don't allow sin to be carried out in the household. You set parameters. So those are hard things, and we're going to deal more with that when we get into the parenting aspect. But I just wanted to address that. Let's continue in the text. Verse 11. But now I've written you not to keep company with... i read that already. Down to verse 12. For what have I have to do with judging those who are outside? We don't have any place to judge those who are outside. And yet we don't know where the wheat and the tares are in the church. God's going to determine that at a point in time. But any professing believer, one claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ, we are to deal with that in a a manner that God calls us to of godly discipline. So we do not judge those who are outside. We don't, that's not our place. But Paul goes on, do you not judge those who are inside? Now this is a judicial term. That is carrying out uh, a form of judgment which comes with discipline. So there's different types of judgment when we look at the word judge. One is a condemning critical attitude of judgment, and that's what the Lord was warning those in Matthew 7, and that's a warning given to us in James. So there's warnings that we should never be having a critical judgment against somebody, but yet a discerning judgment and carrying out a biblical discipline, that's, that's what we're called to. But to do so in love. You see, when you talk about discipline, it brings all kinds of red flags because most of us have seen it done poorly. When you look at the universal church, people have come from different backgrounds and you have maybe had experiences where, whoa, if I ever get in trouble, I don't want to talk to a Christian. In fact, uh, there was a quote from an old saint in the 1800s, I better to have the ear of a bartender than the wagging tons, tongues of the church. Well, that's a, that's a sad commentary to really think about that. We should be able to exercise loving discipline for the purpose of restoration of a fallen brother or sister. That attitude should always be one of love. If it's not, then you should have no part in it. If you can't exercise loving discipline, you shouldn't be a part of it. But let me give you an admonition here. When there is discipline carried out, we got to be careful of our approach. It isn't for the purpose of some kind of condemnation on the individual. It's not for the purpose of demeaning their person. It's for the purpose of them being brought to repentance and restoration with God and then with the brethren. That's the whole purpose. If we lose sight of that, then all of a sudden people start rubbing their hands and go, oh, I'm glad they finally got their just due. And we can do that in our hearts. 
but we're in sin if we do. Paul goes on to say, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So he's he's giving us the the whole process here. Uh, in fact, I I left out a portion back in verse 11 toward the end of it. It says, or any idolater or reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. What that's saying is, as Christians, we don't uh, engage in a social relationship with somebody who is living in rampant sin, where unrepentant sin. We don't go, oh, you can't come to church, but hey, let's meet for lunch next week. And how you doing? You know, if you do meet somebody, it's for the purpose of exhorting them. It's for the purpose of bringing them to the place of repentance. That's the picture that we have to have. It isn't all, you can't come to church, you can't participate in our worship service, but hey, we're having a potluck afterwards, come on in. That isn't it at all. We do not socially or in worship bring that individual in. For what purpose? So they can be brought to a place of repentance. But we never stop reaching out to them because in Matthew 18 as well as here, we see them as unbelievers to be one to Christ. When there's no evidence of repentance and no remorse for their sin, then we reach out to them as we would, as Carol said, the unbelievers. And as Darian said, we look at it as a means of reaching them with the gospel. Steve. So if I have a 19-year-old son who's living with his girlfriend, he claims to be a believer, should my wife and I invite him over for a Christmas lunch? Good question. <laughs> I hate those kind of questions. <laughs> okay, let me ask a question in regards to that. Is this person claiming to be a Christian? Okay, that makes all the difference in the world. Steve says, you have a professing or so-called brother or who is your child, 19 years old, living with somebody in sin. You would treat them in the same manner that you would somebody in the body of Christ. I'm assuming that they might have already been excommunicated. Yeah, so um, if... If they were a member of a body, they certainly would have gone through that process if they're holding to biblical truth. So we should treat them with the love of wanting to win them to repentance, but not to embrace their lifestyle. So there's a real, um, and I don't want to be too dogmatic in this area, we have to really be prayerful and careful how we approach somebody like that as to not close the door to being able to give them truth. Because in a case like that, it can go from person to person to person. I mean, somebody is uh, unrepentant or unregenerate. It isn't just one person. It'll be repetitive throughout their lives until they come to repentance. So how do we keep that open door? That's a real uh, fine line. We have to be able to maintain a friendship and relationship with them 
And so I, I don't want to give a pat answer here. We just have to recognize the end goal is to win them to a place of understanding and knowing Christ and that God would bring them to repentance. Remember, it's God that grants repentance here. We can't, by our great uh, apologetics, try to win them to repentance. It is giving them truth, allowing God to work through his word, and allowing God's spirit to bring conviction of their sin, God granting them repentance. So is that helpful or not comprehensive enough? You might make a good politician, Jack. Oh, boy. Wow. That's a good answer. Uh, that was a low blow, but okay. Okay, this is a this is where I would draw a line because if the person is professing to be a Christian, they've sinned and they're living in willful sin. You would have to draw a line here. So it isn't like you can just say, you know, I know you're you're a Christian, but I know you're in a kind of a wayward place. We really have to recognize this is pertaining to the body of Christ, and it's uh, it's it's not just uh, that we have bloodline, but it's talking about a mandate, an imperative from Scripture that we must uh, uh, confront somebody who is a so-called brother who is in sin and pull away from them. If if they haven't been in church, <clears throat> that's because <clears throat> they've either been put out or they pull themselves away to stay away from the disciplinary action. Either way, we still treat them with this same regard, they are un, they're unrepentant, and if they're so-called brothers, we need to separate ourselves from them. So it has to be that line. Is that more clear? I don't want to be political on this at all. I want to be black and white clear that this is talking about the so-called brother, one who is professing to know Christ and yet living in sin. Now, let me bring a qualification here. I would confront that individual and say, do you really think you're a Christian? Do you really say that you name the name of Christ and consider yourself saved and go through the whole gospel if necessary? And if they say, yeah, then say, how can you say that when Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments? How can you say that? And you can start naming off all kinds of scripture that brings to bear his sin or her sin, whoever it is. So, yes, confronting them with their sin and confronting their so-called profession and faith is the only way you could deal with it. It's still the body of Christ, even though we're blood relationship. Jim? As I said, part of the answer to Steve's question has to do with filling in the blank of how you, a parent, handled that before Christmas dinner. Because if that's if you're have not mentioned anything to your wayward son, and now you're at the point of saying, do I invite him to Christmas lunch or not? You've neglected a whole chunk of oh, yeah. parenting and, and Christian responsibilities. If you have a parent that sat down and said, look, son, we got something that we need to deal with here. You're not a believer, and what you need is the gospel, and here's where you're in sin. So please stop blaspheming Christ by claiming to be a believer. You're no more of a believer than Uncle Jack. 
is living in immorality as well. So stop with the blasphemy. And you have to understand I hate your sin. I love you, and I won't tolerate your sin, sin or stomach your sin. And I'm not going to compromise. If you've laid all of that out beforehand, then I think that when Christmas time rolls around, you can treat him as you would Uncle Jack, who's living in immorality. He doesn't yeah. want to be a believer. Good point. And also, with all of that context, is how has the church handled it? And the parents, how have you participated or worked with the church in trying to handle your wayward son? What type of a stand have you taken? Have you compromised? Have you not compromised? Have you been honest with your son? All of that plays into how do you handle it on Christmas morning. Good point. I want to repeat that because of for the recording. What Jim has brought forth here is a, a crucial point in the question that was brought forth. If a, if you're considering about whether or not this wayward son should be invited to Christmas, there is a period of time where this son has been living in sin. What has been done interimly by the parent? Have we approached that wayward son and confronted them with their sin? And if they're still professing to be Christians, then bring forth the truth to bear upon that, to reprove them. And as Jim said, if they finally say, well, yeah, I guess I'm not really a Christian, then invite them like your sinful Uncle Jack. I didn't know you knew my uncle that well. But, um, and we're related. <laughs> could be with my uncle, I'll tell you. Um, so we have to realize that if... If we have a relative and they come to a place and they're living, I have a lot of relatives that I have over that are in rampant, I mean, horrible sin. And yet they're not trying to claim they're believers. How, how, with one exception, uh, uh, one relative of mine. Jim. I think if you're clear with your son that um, you, are, you do not consider him to be a believer, that is where you, you spell that out. As long as he doesn't think that this is Christian fellowship or that I am participating here in the spiritual life of the family, as long as you're clear with your son, you are not in fellowship with the Lord or with us spiritually. You are so out of fellowship that if we treat you as an unbeliever, please don't think that Christmas dinner means to us that you're part of the spiritual family. Excellent you spell that clarification. Excellent clarification. That does bring real clarity to the whole scenario. If you identify to that relative or fallen son that clearly they're not believers and you welcome them to your house in recognition of that fact, that you are not bringing them there to celebrate in fellowship the Christian uh, celebration of Christmas, but that you are bringing them and recognizing they're, they're a relative, they're a son, or whatever, but they're not believers, and you're not recognizing them as such. Yes, Here's where Jim. I struggle with that. When we talk about the youth working its way through the whole back, in that if this relative of mine uh, is in sin, and we invite them into our home, and then I have a young child who says to me, but you said divorce is wrong, or you said that living with someone is wrong, or you said that this is wrong, yeah. and now we're getting muddled with this person, and it's hard for me to explain to a younger child how I love so-and-so, but yes, they say they're Christians, no, they're not living like it. So, and I worry a little bit about that case working its way into my okay. younger, younger children. Good point. Lest I be considered a, a real... Um, left-wing politician here. I want to make it clear. Um, 
that when there's a situation when we have children, if it's an adult situation where, you know, I was picturing, you know, two adults inviting their 19-year-old son to dinner. But when you have small children and you've already uh, established some biblical standards with those children, and maybe some of those little children have come to a place of acknowledging Christ as their Savior, then we have to protect them. Uh, we do not want to expose them to that hypocrisy and say, well, well, because he's really not behaving like a Christian, we're not treating him like a Christian, so, you know, it's okay, we're just going to invite him. You might have to make that separation right there. And, and I would be very clear, if I had younger children and an older son, I would make it real clear with them. I'd say, you know what? I will, uh, I'll take you out to dinner by myself sometime. But I'm not exposing my children with your hypocritical life. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, this was many years ago. And there was a, a young fellow that um, we were supporting as a missionary, and the kids were supporting him. He was a single guy. And when he got back from the mission field, uh, we invited him to stay with us. And so when he stayed with us, he said that he had a real epiphany of some sort when he was over, he was serving in Africa at that time. And he said, you know, I don't really recognize all these Christian rules anymore. And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, I said, you know, drinking's not all that bad. And some of, you know, some of the things that we considered bad, he said, I don't consider so bad. He said, so I'm bringing a six pack to dinner tonight. And I said, not in my house. And he goes, what? He said, I thought we were friends and brothers. And I said, I've got two children. You know what they did? They took their allowance. They took a portion of that allowance and tithe and a portion of it they committed to your mission work. I will not bring you in this house as one they've looked at as a missionary and you sit there and tear down what biblical understandings they have, I will not allow. And I didn't. I eventually had him leave. I didn't have him come in. So that was a hard thing for me. And I was quite young as a believer then, so though chronologically I wasn't that young, but um, it was a hard thing for me. And, you know, he thought I was legalist and all this kind of stuff, and his life nevertheless manifested that he was in deep sin. And eventually I was able to confront that sin. Uh, and for a period there seemed to be a, some repentance. So definitely we do not want to bring into our home some contradiction which would leaven the family. Thomas. I just want to bring up the, uh, the fact that if you have a child who is questioning that and you have an opportunity to talk about it, it's a much better opportunity for you to discuss it with your child than what they're going to find out in the world as they grow up. And it's better that you are able to intervene with discernment early on in their life than to wait for them to come to you with questions when they're already trying to be discerning and going, parents are dumb. <laughs> you know, when they're that, at that age, you know, you've got a great opportunity to, to talk about that. And I'm like with Jess, I wouldn't suggest you bring sin into your home, but 
uh, total shielding of children against the world will totally shield them against the world until they get into the world, and then they won't have to be prepared for it. I agree, but I can't say it's this is really hard for some conversations to have with a young child who says, so and so is a believer and is no longer married, and what about me and daddy? And I say, well, daddy and I really love God, and it's a hard yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these are times, it's true, we can exercise that opportunity, but at the same time, under the parenting responsibility, we are to protect our children in every way we can. Doesn't mean that they won't make wrong choices when they uh, go out on their own, but our responsibility is to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So even though we would take opportunity with instruction at that time, as Jen said, that's a painful thing to try to explain. Even if a child is asking that, why is it that they can do this? So, Al. Excellent point. And you give it to the Lord and keep giving it to the Lord and, and utilize the tough love, doing that which, like you were saying, and Jim and everybody else is saying, it, it's not easy. It's tough. But God will do it one way or another. The person can either reset what God has uh, presenting to them over the however long it takes or uh, reject it. Okay, good point. Did you all hear what Al said? It, uh, when we exercise this loving uh, separation and discipline, it's not easy. And yet, we can completely, absolutely trust that this is God's perfect plan. This is a total and complete act of love that we need to exercise out of obedience to God's word. It's not what we feel about it. And even though we exercise, in some cases, what some refer to as uh, tough love, it's actually agape love, unconditional. I've got to stop now. We're running late. Thank you for your comments. Father, we do thank you this morning for the privilege of being able to look at your word. I thank you for all those that participated in this uh, discussion of your word. I pray that we might truly be able to put into practice these truths. And as Gordy presents us with the message this morning, Father, I just pray that you prepare our hearts. We look forward to our time of worship and praise 
and to hear what your servant Gordon Hunt has to say to us. And we just praise you and ask that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.